Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to your booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, book inspector and Libro Cubicurialist. That's a word I just learned that more or less explains the terrible affliction I suffer from when you get sharp, recurring stabbing pains in the night because your bed is full of books that you've forgotten about until you roll over. My brand new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline and it's available online and from bookshops across the UK. Buying the book is the best way for you to support the podcast. Now to this week's fabulous guest, the author, journalist and poet, Sarah Maria Griffin. I'm quite new to Sarah's work, but like all of the best things in my life, the people I'm most fond of raved about how great she is and they were all right. Sarah's first book, Not Lost, is an essay collection about her move from Ireland to the west coast of America. And now she's back in Dublin and her brand new novel, Other Words for Smoke, has received huge amounts of acclaim. It's the story of twins May and Rossa and the otherworldly secrets they discover in a mysterious house. We talked about place, the past, and the importance of author-supporting authors and cherishing your cheerleaders. From Sarah's home in Dublin. I want to describe the room we're in because I feel as though this your amazing range. Yeah. This, this room really kind of reflects that. It's fab. So there's a fairly, I'm going to say, oh, trad. It's like three, three sets of sort of bookshelves kind of as one, making Billies. up about yeah. half a wall. But I thought they might be I billies. billies. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing because these are all kind of, I love that you've got like books doubled up. You know, you've got ornaments and exciting things and DVDs as well. I see, you know, you've got, Mostly I see a Santa. I see, who, who is That's that? That's spider it's Spider-Man. Um, yeah. It's Spider-Man, I see um, the VHS of... Uh, <sighs> a loose VHS, the really, VHS, really long oh, story. The VHS say, box for clerks. clerks. But presumably that is clerks. Yeah, it's clerks. Uh, the, VH, the VH box for clerks is somewhere in this house, but my husband left that there as kind of like a, a, an antique. Yeah, the bookshelf is a mess. It's pretty much where everything but goes. It's a glorious mess. And then, going over oh, here, you've got really another new. sort we of similar... One. Flat white Billy. There are these very cool, like white. Mm. These could be they're like coffee tables. Yeah, they they could be. I think they're sort of just bubbles. They're, they're kind just of weird. Dad bubbles with books within them and a mix of books and consoles. And then you have got another sort of it's the, the, the mantelpiece. We're going to a gorilla bookcase. Yeah, mantelpiece. It stops the cat walking on it because he can't. <laughs> he, for when the books when there were less books on the mantelpiece, he would just like slap them. And uh, now there's too many for him to get up there. So, Sarah, the first book that's caught my eye on your shelf is oh, How, how to, deal to Deal with Poxes. Yeah. This looks really cool. Eva Dooley's a wonderful illustrator. She's actually from my neck of the woods in Dublin. And she um, writes these lovely uh, illustrated books about Dublin culture. And uh, they warm my heart massively. So I actually have a copy there for my parents. And I have a copy. Oh, that, oh sorry. I love Oh, I see. Uh, and I have a copy there for me as well. Oh, uh, I'm just going to describe this. Very, it's got a very cool um, cover with a... Um, the Dublin horn on the cover. Is that... Oh, is that a he? Horn. He yeah. is the hun. She's the, a horn. To yeah. me, to my <laughs> English eyes, the Dublin hun, I think, looks a tiny bit like a sort of a slightly happier, healthier 
Amy Winehouse yeah, for the sporty the hoodie. Yeah, the bun. It's the mm. bun and the hoodie and the hoops. Bum duck hair, the hoops. Yeah, the, we, um, we never got over lashes. like Lily Allen during a very particular hoop earring Nike Air Max period. I personally haven't either. So it's hybridised between an Amy Winehouse bun and a Lily Allen hoop and sneaker combo, uh, I think. From Dress and Trainers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that look. Because uh, I've been there, I saw Poxes and I thought this was going to be kind of of the occult. Oh um, no, you know, it could be. That's, a, it, that's a, all it's equally like as likely modern... on these bookshelves. Uh, but no, Poxes yeah, are... I've seen uh, bits of sci-fi and yeah. also bits of... Um, I love science. I <laughs> Is love that science. your book? Oh, it's a book of poetry. Um, <gasps> so I am a poetry book hoarder. I uh, read probably more poems than I do novels part of that is time and broken attention span but also because I believe that within the form of the poem which takes about 30 seconds sometimes to read uh you can change your entire worldview so um I buy a lot of poetry books and they're nice and slim and small and this you can keep gorgeous. them in your bag it's got a really cool cover um sort of gray old school photo with it. it's, it's like an old school uh, like a science textbook I guess isn't it yeah the girl like the prism going through her do you want to read Why I Like Laundry Machines with Circle Windows? Why I Like Laundry Machines with Circle Windows. Pink, 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 red, pink, pink. Yeah, it's Shani Jean Manny, I think it is, or Manny. It's a Right Bloody book. So Right Bloody published books by spoken word performers. They're an American, small American indie publishing house, so... Um, so you've got Writer's Tears. Oh, that's a, that's a whiskey bottle in a bookshelf. Ah, <laughs> nice. That was a very kind and Christmas gift proper, from my ooh. from my in-laws. It's probably like hollowed out with the whiskey in it. That's a great so thing. So it sits up there for emergencies. Discover. As a writer, are you, um, are you given to weeping much, do you think? I um, think I'm more given to long spates of sitting in a kind of a pretzel shape, staring into the middle distance in agony rather than actual fully crying. I would love to be able to fully cry more often. I think it's a, I, I think I'm much more um, paused or like, like trapped in time and um, like splintered periods of ennui rather than bawling. If I, could cry, if I could actually do more crying, I think I'd be way better. <laughs> but the rest of it is like an anxiety knot. A good weep is quite so, soothing. Oh but gosh, you do, but I do sometimes think about, do you like writing? I'm not always sure that I do. I like writing more than I like anything else. It's all the other stuff that's difficult. The bit where you're on your own and just with the paper and the, I do a lot of handwriting like almost exclusively and then I type everything up I really wow yeah, yeah so I the bit with the pen and the paper and the quiet and nobody talking to you um is the best bit the other stuff is really really hard for me so um so I like you, writing but I don't like the other bit when you're typing you editing as you go Does a little that bit yeah yeah and often very angry at my pen self who's like insert more beautiful word here or <laughs> make this bit better or fight scene Oh. Which is not a very nice thing to do to your future self at all. That'd be a great poem, fighting <laughs> in brackets. I, do, I sometimes think about this looking at bookshelves and the, realizing how much anxious pretzeling weeping has probably gone into all of these. Oh, like it's like you know avocado farming and knowing that it takes a bajillion gallons of water to make a single avocado. How many gallons of tears and how many anxiety how much tension and, like physical stress, has it yeah. taken to bring this amount of and books in the one writers, place but the illustrators the designers the agents the editors like every single one of these is the product of somebody else's massive effort like it's a it's a real circus like it's a real industry yeah, sure. well it's funny you should say circus this is i ah, love this bookshelf because oh it is just God. like jenga i'm just sliding oh, yeah, this out hoping these aren't gonna an, fall an end. Oh, oh, they probably they will. Oh, oh and i'm gonna break a shelf it's all good right that's a Camino shell, not less. A Camino shell? Yeah, I walked across northern oh. Spain. Um, they give you one when you're like a pilgrim on, on the walk. They like give you a little shell to carry to show that you're part of this pilgrimage. So. Oh, and you keep... How long is the walk? The I walked for seven days. Uh, the, the walk, if you really do it, if you're like a serious person, is like three months and starts in the French Alps and goes all the way to Santiago. But I only did a week because I'm lazy. But I... Uh, yes, would... very lazy. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's, a, it's actually not that bad. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a nine to five of walking every day. It's how you get used to it. When did you go and why did you go? I went in March... Oh, Mar- spring last year and I was raising money for the hospital that took care of my dad when he was sick. So yeah, there was about 10 of us who went and did it. Uh, though it is quite a solitary process, you don't really talk very much when uh. you're doing it. It's weirdly emotional. You're just kind of walking. And yeah, it was fantastic. I would, I want to go again for two weeks or three weeks and kind of see how far I can push it out because it's, um, it's interesting what happens to you out there. 
Did you were you expecting it to be quite intense, or did you have revelations that you weren't expecting while Completely. you were walking? Like it's very rural. Like you're sort of walking on this. Well, there's also lots of people there walking in silence, so that process is really strange. Mm. I think there's the is thing it, that they say to you is there's three caminos. There's the one that you do with your body. There's the one uh, that you do with other people, and there's one you do in your head. Oh. So you're very your body is really heavily impacted by it, obviously, and psychically it's really strange. Like I was walking through forests for days at a time like days and days where you're just like you walk to the hostel you go to sleep you get up and you continue to walk through the forest and there's 10 people with us and like I didn't really get to know anything that many one or two went with a friend of mine and and her mom and um I did have some conversations for sure and it was lovely but most of it was um on your own and then by the sort of third or fourth day you're finding excuses to people might stop for coffee or a beer and you're like I'm actually happier to go off by myself it's a um really amazing journey to take it's were really you able cool. to write while you were doing it? No, and I haven't been able to write about it yet, but I would like to. Oh. Uh, I left the day after Anthony Bourdain died, and oh. uh, I went on this kind of like, I'm going to go and eat everything in northern Spain and have like a real fucking... You know, I went with this idea of what I would do there, and it was the total opposite, because there's no, like, food. It's all very much tourist-frozen food, oh. so you're starving, so kind you're of. Like, you can have potatoes, breakfast, and pink sauce. Oh my God, not even. You can have... <laughs> in one place I don't know where again it was just all, because there's lots of little bodegas along the way so you can kind of stop and chill I definitely did but like oh, two hours I'm gonna have a fucking one euro beer like very <laughs> very cruisy and chill you know like having a cigarette in the middle of your hike you know but there was one place I was starving one day and I saw on a menu it was, it was potatoes bravas and I was like I know what that is and in my head I was like okay these are gonna be tiny little cubed like perfect potatoes with like a marinara style sauce absolutely not it was frozen french fries and ketchup oh, and so I sat there looking at it going I'm going to eat this and I am so sad in my heart that I have to but I was so hungry actually the whole time because the food was just really um uh, basic and uh, I guess that's a thing in itself like when you're you're not going to walk the, it's very religious like I'm not religious I'm completely agnostic like I don't know shit about what goes on outside the planet I don't claim to but when you're walking it, many people are walking for religious reasons. So a lot of the components that you experience of it, like visiting churches and whatever, like it's sort of penance. Like I, I came across a statue. I love uh, Virgin Marys, right? So Virgin Marys show up in my work a lot. I think they're, I, I, I think that they're more secular than Irish people that love the Virgin Mary. very Mary's. religious. No, but, Visions but, of the Virgin Mary, just telling you. Irish people fucking love the Virgin Mary, man. Like Mary's <laughs> everywhere, man. Mary is like, in my school, there will be like two statues of Mary in every classroom. Mary's everywhere, right? So when I was walking around and walking around, I was walking along, stopped in a church because you have to stop in like churches or bodegas or cafes and get stamps on your passport because if you don't get two stamps a day, you can't prove that you've travelled the distance. Ah. So it's kind of like, it, it, it appeals to the video game person in me where I'm like, you collect shit as you go along, right? And I was stopped in one little cathedral to have a nose around and there was this statue of a Mary, but it wasn't a fucking Mary. It was a woman with no eyes holding a gold plate with her eyes on it and like look like facing up towards God. And I was like, who the fuck is this? We took a picture of her. St. Lucy. Right. Who like pulled her own eyes out because she like fancied somebody once and was like, I'm so sorry. Fuck, here are my eyeballs. But that penance and that self-elected suffering is part of why a lot of people do the Camino. I definitely was doing it out of curiosity and because I like walking, mm. but something does happen to you along the way where you're like super fucking hungry and like mad grumpy that the food isn't better, but you're like, it's not meant to be mm. like, this isn't a fucking Instagram destination holiday. This is a fucking pilgrimage. And no, I don't, I'm not doing it for Jesus reasons, but like, you also have to kind of respect how it's structured. Yeah. So I thought I would be going on a like, go and eat around Northern Spain, Anthony Bourdain, like, trotting, yeah, like, here's my truth. And in actual fact, it was like, no, just fucking walk the path like millions of people have before you get over yourself. By the time I got to Santiago, my blisters were very, very, very bad. And um, I didn't go to the church at the end because, you know, you get to the end and you're meant to go and watch the big thing of incense swinging with all the other pilgrims. Absolutely not. I'm not going to be another Irish woman sitting in pain in a church. I don't go into churches. I don't <laughs> like them. It really hurts your eyes, that incense. You've got to screw up against it. Like um, like in the days of smoking. Yeah. You go into a pub and I'm like, whoa. And it's just on you and on everything you own. And uh, I, inc- I don't know, was it before or after the referendum that we went? But I, w- I felt like I'd be a fucking hypocrite if I went to a church and... And uh, after walking that length of distance and I went to the, we stayed in a moderately nicer hotel at the end. We'd been kind of staying in campsites and there was a pool and it was empty. And I went, my feet were like destroyed with pain and like bandaged up and I got into the pool for two hours and I just kind of floated and did a little bit of swimming on my own. And that was like the end of it then, Mm. you know what I mean? It was a really, um, that's actually kind of the first time I've really talked about it in detail. I don't really, I'm still kind of working it all out. 
like I would like to write about it at some point. Please do. I love I think to read. I, I want to write about I it. More. Me, me and my husband walked the Wicklow Way, which was much longer as well, like, later on in the year. Walking's deadly. I think walking is the same as writing. I do think they're like not dissimilar. You mentioned Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, um, he's around here somewhere. He's on do the. You have a, let's yeah, go find him. I've got two. Uh, so I bought this one. I was in the Strand oh. in New York recently, and I haven't read it yet, which is like a graphic novel oh. of food horror stories. I don't think I knew that he had done that. Did he? Neither did I. Who illustrated it? Uh, so let's have a look. Um, Joel Rose. Uh, this it seems to be an anthology collection, so it looks like lots of different illustrators. And it says his recipes inside. It's brand new. You can still smell how new it is. Oh, I only got it like a wish. week ago, so it's Shiny on my pages. it's on my guilty uh, point um, on the shelf that I haven't gotten to yet. But uh, Kitchen Confidentials are right here. So did you? Because I know you know you're one of your many many brilliant things you do is food writing. Mm. Were you a a fan and someone who loved his writing before Not his writing, you? His telepresence. I food writing is relatively kind of new in my life. And when I worked in the bookshop in San Francisco, um, one of the other managers, one of the managers, I was a buyer, not a manager, not a floor staff, like kind of in, in between, <laughs> moderately lawless. No one could give out to me. No one did give out to me. It was the best job ever. Sarah is. did not like, fire anyone. I never fired anyone. I did not get fired somehow. <laughs> but one of the managers, Camden, who was um, got maybe the most exquisite taste of anyone I've ever known. One of the many things that I loved about him is that he's from a small town in Connecticut called Mystic. Oh, a real person from Mystic, Connecticut, right? So everything that that entails, he has. I, I have a lot of love for him. I haven't seen him in years. I hope to see him when I go back soon. But he handed me MFK Fisher's uh, work when we were there, like the first, uh, I think it's the first oyster. And I remember reading her at the shop counter one evening. We were not meant to be reading at shop counters. That's not. It's not a real thing that booksellers do. Under, I had been reading a lot of nonfiction and I'd just written a book of nonfiction and I was like hungry for more different perspectives on how we write the story of life and what allegory and metaphor we use to tell our truth. And it had never, for some reason, occurred to me that you could do that. So I knew Anthony Bourdain in the same context that I knew Ligella Lawson. Yeah. Just the telly. Fancy food people on the telly. And I didn't have any kind of understanding of him as like a obviously like pro stylist and like an amazing storyteller and then kind of just fell in love with him in the same way the whole world did. I guess there are always going to be different kinds of writers who you want to be when you grow up and like the where the taste gap lies where you you know the work that you make and the work that you want to make. I don't think I could ever reasonably aspire to write about food in the way Bourdain has because I'm not a chef I'm not a cook I'm just a person who likes to eat and prepare food you know I'm I, relatively skillless but also his voice is not really like any other voice mm. that exists in literature I think it's very um, very very distinctive and very loud on mm. the page and uh, I don't know if we'll see his like again I just don't but it's interesting that you mentioned Nigella because I think mm. sort of in that, that food writing world that because she I think was really a writer before she was anything else. Well, yeah, she and you can really, really tell. And again, my entry point to Nigel is the television is is beautiful woman preparing food in her kitchen, talking softly into the camera. So it's only relatively recently that I've been getting the books and trying to kind of cook, not cook like her. I mean, who can't? You know what I mean? But like uh, trying to look at her voice more specifically. Mm. Um, and she, I think the heaven of her is her kindness and her forgivingness, and her always saying, "Take the shortcut. It's not." Here's some butter, like. Almost before we had sort of, you know, social media anxiety, before the age of Instagram, she was saying, it's okay if it doesn't look like... It should, inverted commas, mm. should. I but, there is, but she sort of lifts you up, I think, and makes you feel as though you are capable of, of being her, There's in the way maternal, no great beauty has. Something maternal about her, but, like, not in a way that feels smothering over, or overbearing. She, I went to see her speak um, in National Concert Hall uh, really recently, and just hearing her talk was... Um, it was like, there, there's your pilgrimage, you know what I mean? Where you're like sitting in this this sort of audience of, of thousands going, oh my God, that's fucking Nigella Lawson. And like listening to, like hanging on her every word and trying to absorb some of that wisdom and kindness and understanding of food. It's possible to look up to people without ever, having any track of ever becoming like them. I am carrying around with me because I saw it yeah. um, when we were talking about the pilgrimage. The, the Night Circus by Erin um, Morgenstern. This is one of the most Beautiful, beautiful cover. Uh, tell us about... Oh, I like the end papers as well. Um, I read this book many, many years ago and I feel like it's one that I desperately need to revisit because Morgan Stern is one of these 
fabulously weird liminal writers. Uh, she's a new book coming, but she didn't write anything for a long time uh, after the Night Circuit. It's, it's a, about a circus and sort of two warring magicians. And But I remember thinking that, like, it's one of those books that lies in almost a speculative realm. It doesn't really land in fantasy or science fiction. Mm. It lands somewhere else. And reading it, thinking, this isn't for young people. This isn't for adults. This isn't targeting me in any particular mm. way. It's a strange book. And um, I'm overdue a reread. It's, uh, it stays in a central place on my shelf because I think I need to go back there. I need to go back there, especially before her new one comes out. For anyone listening who doesn't know, so you moved to San Francisco. It was that, um, when did you go and when did you come back? 12. I lived there for exactly three years and three days. So I moved in 2012 during the great exodus of Irish people from Ireland during the recession. And I came back in 2015. I know your very first book is about what yeah. it was like Not to, lost to leave and, and be there. Let's, let's go and it's, find it. It's in the corners. One <laughs> copy of it in the south. Did you write it while you were... Yeah. While you were living there. It's and about one year. Yeah, it's exactly about one year. It's right beyond here. It's hiding away. Oh, I thank you so much. Yeah, that's baby me. I um, love this cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah look, so at your fr- look at your fringe. Yeah, tiny child. Like, I'm actually probably 19 in that photograph as well, which is gross. Um, every, that photo is the one that keeps haunting me at, at different things. People, it's when people pull out of Google and I'm like, ah, oh, that is fucking 10 years ago, guys. Please do not. Uh, so we should say this is Not Lost, a story about leaving home by Sarah Maria Griffin, published by New, New Island. Yeah, they took a big chance on me. I was only a only a little squirt. I had, I had started to write for the uh, the paper about immigration. I'd started to write about um, like notes, I guess, and letters about living in California. Mm. And um, through one thing or another, I wound up kind of compiling them and writing some new ones and it came it was written very very quickly and it came out within a year it's it's it was written during my second year there about my first year mm. there so it's very um photographic nearly and it's it's a it's it's of a time very specific time so it's not really memoir it's not like this is my life story it, even at the beginning it's very much like this is a book about a year one year mm. and um yeah, it's a weird little baby book. Do you think writing it in stages and at beginning is, I guess, journalism and observations, was that a way of helping you sort of feel your way into it being a book? Do you think you would have felt differently about it if someone was like, okay, write a whole book now, go? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I think because it was part of that time when, and we were talking about it earlier off, Mike, about when essays started to meet the public consciousness way like Jezebel and Exojane and things like that I was reading a lot of non-fiction and I I mean I had like aspirations way beyond my ability but uh, I knew that when I was writing it that I wanted to write about it in four parts like each season like Mm. I arrived in summer and I like let's look at the movement of the time and some of the essays are really weird and slightly experimental like there there's one that's five vignettes about raccoons because I'd never seen a raccoon before I moved to California why would I they don't exist in Ireland and uh, each is like a a kind of a moment where something had happened to me in the States that would never have happened in Ireland. And I like insert a raccoon into that situation. <laughs> so like they're a little bit strange. So my the publisher were lovely and they let me do weird things within the confines of it. So ultimately it's a book about alienation and kind of being 24. I got married that year. So it's about eloping. It's about... Um, it's about lots of things and and I was very deliberately guarded and not writing about the work that I was doing I was a nanny and a house cleaner at the time and I didn't want to be made an example of as like oh look moderately undocumented Irish shit let's just like get rid of her um I had to be I kept a very serious distance between what was going on in my emotional life and what was going on in the book and I did get flagged a few times by reviewers they were like she's saying enough but she's something she's not saying here and I'm like ah transparent as fuck am I and I looking back on it it is a, in many ways a piece of juvenilia but and I I'm think it is. so wise to do that in your early 20s and not could have been give everything away I could have been cleverer about how I did it again I'm I my sister is that age now and I'm like how the fuck did I do that at that age but I am um, I'm really glad I did and I'm really glad it exists as like a document of a period and I do get emails every so often from other people who've left Ireland who have had it given to them like as this sort of like hey this person left I was at a festival on an island called Inishir um called Drop Everything sitting at a rock pool and <laughs> with my feet in the rock pool drinking beers on the beach and I was sitting next to these two people waiting for an outdoor gig to start and one of them went sorry did you write not lost and I was like holy shit like it, it, it's not like she had lived in San Francisco as well and like her sister had sent her a copy and I was like fuck yeah cool thank you for reading that and I'm glad that you and me had some sort of a link there because it was a little book when people have read it it always means um a lot it's a really personal weird one 
And I imagine one that people, you know, keep in their hearts and it's got a a bigger meaning than your own because I suppose people sort of put so much of their experiences and their ideas in it and it's I guess something that you'd read at a really meaningful time in your life. Well that's a lucky thing you know because there's so much rhetoric and so much written about the Irish emigration narrative and I guess in the way that the Irish are moving uh, the Irish are in America at the moment and that like we're half the fucking White House administration frankly which is kind of gross and like what it means to be Irish in America Mm -hmm. as an immigrant which is what you are and largely like in many cases a working class immigrant Mm -hmm. but you're also white so there's a really um, interesting passing problem that you have when you're there where you still feel like you're out of place but you actually aren't being oppressed in any way you're just having a kind of a weird time and um there's amazing writing done about that my book has notes of that in it but there is there are people who have written more concisely about the irish experience like in many ways more beautifully like fiction and like Maeve um Maeve Higgins wrote a book um which I have somewhere rattling around here called Maeve in America which is much more specifically about and some That's ha- a great title if your name I is know Maeve, Maeve in America to, and it's a beautiful little edition it's a real scrappy pocket book and I I don't think it's out here I I got a I got a, a copy um that is one of the American ones but um she writes way more astutely and critically about what it is to be an immigrant and immigrant experience in New York. So what it is to be an Irish person in New York in the current political climate. Mm-hmm. Like this, per- She's very, very funny, but she definitely doesn't shy away at all from um, more critical and historical context of what it is to be an Irish person in America. Because I don't think we can just be like, yes, I'm an expat, I went and I had a magical experience. Like, it's actually, you're part of a broader scope of cultural conversation. I think all writing is striptease, right? Where it's just, like, very slight removal of things, mm-hmm. very slow uh, revelation, right? Like, all storytelling is about revelation, mm-hmm. right? And for me, as a human writing... I would I I love fiction because it allows you costume and uh, prop to express your like truth through, and I'm I'm much more comfortable in that realm because I feel like I can write characters who are fucking terrible human beings and like allow the parts of me that otherwise I silence and within the patriarchy to live and walk around and act and behave and carry narrative and have complications. Like and not be always the best, you know. Fiction refreshes the parts that other pros can't reach. That's it. That's it. It's the it's the costume I want to wear, man. I'm I'm about it. I wanted to ask: Do you think of yourself as a writer or an Irish writer? Whoa, big question. Um, ultimately, uh, that's such a good question. I'm never in the Irish writer section in bookshops. Um, Interesting. Yeah, never. Um, I always end up in science fiction, which I'm not complaining about. I'm happy to be there. Because I did want to ask Um, you about that as well with the um. The Night Circus, um, I'm looking for it. Yeah, oh, yeah, it yeah. And it's saying that kind of defied genre. And yeah. you're someone who's been, I guess, on both sides of it. How much you think I would those labels to. are kind of useful prompts for people to know what they're looking for and how much they, they make us miss stuff. I think we've got to keep in mind that, like, labelling in terms of, like, YA, for example, right, uh, and Irish writing... Um, are bookshop layout terms, right? As a former bookseller, mm. do you know? And, like, I'm hell- I am really grateful for them. But when I'm writing and making work, I don't really think about that. The books that I write are all Irish. I'm an Irish writer. When we talk about Irish writers, I think there's a kind of a hot list of dead lads who mm. tend to be the the touchstones um, for what people assume an Irish writer is. Mm. Uh, I think the kind of weird stuff that I do doesn't always fall into maybe what now, I should be talking about if I was an Irish writer. But Ireland is a character. Well, you like, know much better than I do, but I feel as though there is a really, really amazing array of shit-hot women like you uh, who are very much alive who are really coming up who people are super happening. excited about something's right now. happening. Like, I mean, Emily Pine's notes to self smashed this year and is an outstanding piece of work. Sinead Gleeson's Constellations is just about to come out and, like, I feel oh, like I'm I've so been... excited about I've that been thing. going back through it, like, and just pulling bits and pieces out of it. Like, there's amazing non-fiction writers producing work like Roe McDermott's work around um like sex and gender uh, and like her columns are like really really powerful Deirdre Sullivan writes amazing short stories and books for young people like her book uh, Tangleweed and Brian is like a retelling it's like Angela Carter grade but further Ooh. like pushing pushing the 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 trope work of Angela Carter not to say that it's tropes but you know what I mean the arc the uh, archaic storytelling yeah. style pushing that even further and querying the fairy tale 
even further. Maura Foley Doyle writes amazing. Again, sort of, it's it's marketed as YA. I don't, I've read like the accent season. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't feel like YA to me, but that could be just my adult brain. There's a whole gen, I feel like I'm missing people even. Um, Jean Caldwell writes amazing short stories that are like really fucked up. Louise O'Neill, obviously, yeah. like massively successful on both sides of the, of the, 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 the channel that is it that, that's not what it's called the yeah. both islands both <laughs> islands yeah both islands uh, and then like all the way up to people like Marion Keys who paved the way for us like there are and like fucking Sally Rooney Jesus Christ and like fucking um, Anna, uh, Burns. Anna Burns like do you know what I mean like that's fully I've been talking for fucking four minutes I, there are so many amazing women I feel like I've forgotten Eva half of them Eva McBride oh my god Sarah Baum holy shit she was amazing uh, Caroline Donahue yeah man we gotta call her back in like come back to us Caroline move home um, there's so many Irish women who are chipping away but like that's a wave and hopefully that wave will stay where it is like Gleeson has done a lot of really good work with her anthologies around mm. um, surfacing uh, forgotten Irish writers mm. and Tramp Press who who, uh, who are a publisher a female publishing house a really amazing uh, set of women they publish a recovered title every year and in the last few years Dorothy McArdle has been the Irish writer who they have championed and kind of made sure it isn't forgotten we've always been here we're very much here now mm. but I think it'll take a lot more than a I think it'll take time like Tana French I'm just thinking she's fucking amazing like I'm looking around at myself going yeah man like and I guess if you were to sort of say you know you're like genre is Irish women writers and you think mm. of the multitudes contained within that that's kind yeah. of and how eclectic it is that's really really thrilling but also it's a weird in a way we have so many crime writers you know that we have so many amazing crime like you're right it's so eclectic like we have so many different kinds of writers there's no other way that you'd all be next to each other in a bookshop other than but we're in some ways it sort of would be lovely to to see that Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. We'll be back with Sarah shortly, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book that's even better than finding a suitcase filled with gold bars down the back of your sofa. This week it's a book recommended by an old guest, Sinead Grayson, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital by Laurie Moore. From Paris, with her estranged husband Daniel, Barry recalls her teen years and her intense relationship with Sills, her very best friend. This is a beautiful, bittersweet book. Thematically, I think Moore is a real authorly cousin to Eleanor Ferrante, the prose is rich and luscious but economical. It's a finely drawn exploration of a relationship that can't be done justice by being described simply as friendship. It's shockingly honest and tender about girlhood and womanhood. It's one of those books where everything and nothing happens. Described out loud, the story might seem slight, but reading it felt intense. It will stay with me for a very long time. That's Who Will Run the Frog Hospital by Laurie Moore, published by Faber. Now, back to Sarah. Sarah. Oh, 
five Billy McKeown, another Kim. amazing female writer. Have you read Tender? I think it's ten to the one where it's a relationship and she's sleeping with her gay friend. Oh my gosh. Madame. It's amazing. Belinda is fucking amazing. She lives over in New York. Her, her first book is called Solace. And uh, Tender pretty much ripped my skull off of my shoulders. It's one of those ones that I think still like lives in me a bit. Belinda is Belinda was very, very kind to me when I was coming up, actually. I remember having a coffee with her when I was like 20 and I kind of wanted to be a writer and she was always very, very kind to me in a way that she didn't really have to be and I mm-hmm. admire her a lot. Um, and the book, the Tender is the most accurate portrayal of obsession that I've ever read in my entire life. And I feel like the way that it's structured, it nearly feels like a descent as you're reading it. It's properly suffocating, oh. isn't it? And I remember just feeling that level of insight and kind of going like, no, stop, stop doing this, stop this right now. But you also like, I've been like that girl a thousand times. Same, right? And the first page, you know, the first page that she's fucked because she says James, is that his name? Mm. She says his name about eight, Same. nine times mm. in one page. And like, oh, you got a bad fucker. You're in trouble. And from that point, it only gets worse. And uh, I just loved it. And it's a great portrayal of Ireland at a really particular time. Um, one that I think we kind of romanticise. But you got to remember, like in Ireland in the 90s, it was very dangerous. It was very like, if the homosexuality was fucking illegal, mm. the troubles were like kind of rolling out like it was it's a it's a very particular Ireland I'd love to talk to you more about that sense of being supported by other writers in particular and writers that you admire and how Mm. powerful that is and I only ever really wanted to do one thing and focused like became very myopic and was just like I really just want to write books and I met a lot of pushback in school, I was mm. very academic. Um, didn't really do great in school. I didn't really have many supportive teachers. I had a lot more people telling me, kind of sit down and shut up than, hey, this is possible. There was pretty much nobody who told me, even in college, that this was possible until other people, like, for example, Belinda, would say, well, actually it is, you know. And like one coffee with somebody when they're like fucking 20, still remaining as like a, like a light like, that's really powerful. That's Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That she made that time, but also that just that she normalised it, mm. you know? That someone makes it seem possible. So, like, leading by example is a really real thing. And and the people I kind of would have gone to... I I was an event organiser for a couple of years, like, on, on, the, on the side, working a million million shitty jobs and running this storytelling show with a bunch of people at my husband. And, um, was that here? Yeah, it was in Dublin. So, oh, because yeah. I wanted to ask you about that and how you met. So Yeah, you... yeah, we met at a storytelling show. Uh, like we we both volunteered and we the first night I saw him he was telling a story the first night that we saw each other the first night on stage and little by little orbited one another until uh, there was a house party and then bam nine years later like that's it because we met at the storytelling show and I was just starting to feel like hey this is actually something I really really am going to do and I'm starting to do and there are little things happening you get a tiny publication here and a tiny thing happens there and somebody takes interest in you and gives you advice there and you're co- cobbling together something resembling a not even a byline, I wouldn't even have had that language, but enough to give you confidence to continue. And running that show was, it was like the fucking Muppets. It was a bunch of weirdos. I don't think one can underestimate how enormous that is when something that's purely been in your head and no one else's and someone else, anything at all, is someone else saying, I like that thing that's in your head. I'm sort of endorsing this. I'm going to enjoy this for fun because it's good and not out of any sense of duty. It's huge. And it just becomes part of your life then. It's not something that is private or embarrassing or that you will get kind of cut down for, which Mm. had been my experience. The idea of being a writer was laughable to pretty much everybody in my life growing up. It was something that people were like, oh, yes, Sarah wants to be a fucking writer. Of course she does. Like, it was really not something that, not my parents necessarily, they were more just like, you do realise there's no money in that, but socially and in college. And yeah, I don't really feel like I had any... One writer, Mia Gallagher, actually a wonderful Irish writer. Um, uh, she was a writer in residence in my in my college, and she was very encouraging of me. I remember that around the same time that Belinda would have been. So I remember a few guiding lights, all of whom were women, surprising nobody, being very kind to me and that giving me a bit of hope. You, it's like you gather them, you know. It's yeah. like gathering shining stones mm. until eventually you're, you've got, you've got enough to build something. It. Or it's ingredients, isn't it? And you're the you're the finished, or you're the recipe that's. It matters. Being I'm meeting other people as well who wanted to do the same thing. So mm. getting support from people who were further along is one thing, but meeting people who are like, I want to write books as well, like Dave Rudden, who writes, um, like his books are everywhere in this house. He just wrote a Doctor Who book called 12 Weeping Angels, which is short stories. One of them is about my mother. 
you know he wrote my mother into a doctor who story because my mom's a big doctor who head so the like the final the 13th doctor story and it is about my mom when she's a child that you know isn't that amazing the greatest gift a writer can give anyone holy shit like he's somewhere he there's a character who looks like him rattling around my first novel because when we went to house parties and went to gigs together we're like oh, we're gonna write books we're gonna write books we're gonna write books it's gonna be fine we're gonna write books and flash forward we did it you know so watching other people and dear to yeah. sullivan like i mentioned earlier the very same like just watching people coming along and watching what they do and reading their work and you read a draft that's like a million things cobbled together and then fucking a year and a half later you see it with a spine like what the fuck kind of luxury is that i my teenage self could not believe that like telling the people i knew growing up that i wanted to be a writer was hilarious to them it was literally a point of mocking and now i'm like a grown-up and the people i go pinting with and drinking with are like yeah, man, working on this at the moment and it's just garden variety, you know? Did you always feel very comfortable saying, I am a writer or did that take time? Was there a point when that felt like something you could say without worrying that people were going to kind of shout it down? Until about six months ago, I told like taxi drivers and people like you'd meet in passing, you'd do small talk with that I was a nanny. Um, when I was a kid and a teenager, it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? A writer. What do you want to be when you grow up? A writer. Until eventually in my teens, it was like, oh, fucking... Uh, she thinks she's great like and that stopped then after a point and I remember volunteering the information a few times in college and one lecturer saying to me in particular you can't just be a writer and I won't forget that and uh, that was rough and that stopped me telling people for a long time Um, but I still pursued it and I still went to poetry shows and I still went to open mics and ran a show and everything that I've ever done socially has led up to this point. Like, this is what I mean about myopia. Like, I, the walking is cool, right? Because walking is something that is writing, but isn't writing. Mm. And the cooking is cool because it, is, it isn't writing, but it is writing. Mm. But pretty much everything I've done has led up to this point. And I feel like a lot of people are quite covered. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I just secretly have been writing this book for years. And, like, I... Do you think women do that more? Or? I think definitely women do that more. They definitely do. Like, I I, I think that there's a... I know some amazing, like, Sarah Davis-Goff, um, who is one of the publishers of Tramp. She has a book coming out um, called Last Ones After Live. And I didn't know that she had written this amazing fucking science fiction zombie novel. She just didn't tell anyone. And then suddenly she had just been laboring and crafting this beautiful mental one-of-a-kind piece of dystopian fiction and I was like what like that's amazing that you've been doing that so I do think women are more private about the work they make largely always unnerved me I still feel weird about it sometimes because I still feel like it's it's like a dickhead thing to be even though it's like literally the truth it took me a long time to feel comfortable with it um but that could be that could be class stuff that could be anything and I do wonder about the barriers people want to kind of construct around creativity I think Mm. there's a weird thing where we want to make it seem very very difficult and I don't think that's necessarily writers doing that for other writers I think it has a lot to do with the way people live and the risks people are willing to take or not and I think there may be a people who you sort of want to believe that of course you could do that if you put your mind to it I think that's kind of how I feel about science actually I'd Mm. understand if I just sat down with it I would totally get that I think there's I think there's some of that and I, I think that like there's gatekeeping I think gatekeeping mm. is real and um I I'm very fortunate that like again I've had lovely people further up the line be very kind to me I try and do what I can as well um in terms of keeping things transparent and mm. and sh- if I can't do a job passing it on to somebody like making sure that I'm not so much of this work exists in isolation and and you know you write a book alone the first yeah. time you write a first draft alone um you write it in context you write it with people but you also get the words on the page alone Mm. so this is a really solitary gig you know writers know this but I think that like demystifying that process and talking about it as like a trade is really important and the second that you start Mm. talking about it as a trade that changes the intellectual kind of snobbery and the barrier of like oh yes I'm a writer it's in a garret making up beautiful words like nah man I sit like a pretzel over a desk like giving myself carpal tunnel and I have word count which is this you know my dad always says you're not a fucking coal miner that's fair I'm literally not but if you equate the word count to labor to building something 
yeah, something cool is happening when you're doing that, right? Something beautiful is happening if you're lucky. Every so often you might get a really cracking line, a solid metaphor, something good might happen when you're doing it. But when you are putting words on paper with your hands, you are no fucking different than somebody crafting a piece of jewellery. It's artisan. You're building something with your fucking hands and your brain. That's it. If you learn to, if you can learn to do it if you read in the same way that people can learn to carve or, or learn to paint mm. if they practice. Like it's a practice. It's a, it's a trade, you know? Yeah, and maybe that's the, the democratic part of it. And I mm. th- honestly think that the romance of it mm. really, what takes away from the fact is you just got to keep going. And it reminds me a lot like running, I hate exercise. But no, that's not true, actually. I have, I have a very, <laughs> yes intense relationship with exercise but sometimes I really really do love it but it's just that switch in your head going from again I think a lot like maybe being a writer I think that people who are like fit and healthy they just are that way and they they like it and actually it's like no you keep doing it even when you don't want to do it and you do it regularly yeah no you do it every day I do it every day I do it absolutely I don't do it I feel fucking weird I feel weird and guilty. And I do think that that is something I have to get under kind of control, the feeling guilty when I don't do it. Mm. Um, and that's, you can go too far at the other end. Do where, you sort of write kind of, you know, part of a book or something? Or sometimes is it just writing because you just have, want to write something every day? Lately, um, so since I started, I'm in residence at a beautiful library called the Dunleary Lexicon um, by the Sea, which is a fucking really cool thing. And I'm really, really happy to be there. It's been an amazing, I'm going to be there for a year altogether. I've been there since the summer. And we'll be there until the summer. And since I started that, I've, I was working on my... Th- I, okay, <laughs> 20, 2018. I walked away from a book that I've been writing for years. And that fucking sucked. But I needed to. And it might be something else now, but I had to walk away from it because it was joyless. And it sucked. And I had a really hard time walking away from it. Like a terrible breakup. I was like, I can't fucking believe that you've been working on this since you were 19. And you can't finish it. That must a harrowing it thing sucked. It was do. mortifying because like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to fucking write this book about this, this and this. This is, what, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And then I... Uh, just couldn't do it anymore I had a back injury in 2017 and that kind of polluted the book and I was like I actually can't keep doing this book it was 40,000 50,000 words right that's so it was, a lot. it's a lot right and are you sure in your heart that that's it for you in that book or do you think there's any it's way it could be now. it's something different now it's going to be something different um I, I have I know it's there it's growing it's uh, it's it's age it's maturing in the drawer um fine wine fine wine fine wine that I don't have to look at so what I did then I was like fuck okay that book is making me miserable so I'm gonna write something that is not only gonna make me laugh but it's gonna make my husband laugh so I was like okay I'm gonna write a book that's gonna make us laugh so I started on this other book and it had been humming away I'd had I wanted to write something set on uh, weirdly enough Carolina Dunahue also was mad about the same island that I am Valencia Island in County Kerry it's like this weird spiritual crossover that me and I don't know who have where it's like oh we both mad about this one particular island um, set on an island I uh, went down there for a bit my mates family live on it and I had started just writing a thousand five hundred a thousand words a day just banging it out so what I I developed a very specific routine which I never really kind of had at that level of specificity before where it was like bang out the thousand push 1500 if you can but before I do that I handwrite so I I handwrite my own stuff I just clean my brain and I don't really do morning pages I haven't done the artist's way but when I sit down at the desk I just handwrite whatever is going on in my head for as many pages I can until I've exhausted myself with my own internal bollocks and then we move into the story so every day I write a lot. So I do write every day. I do have a really specific practice. And if I don't do it, I feel weird. I feel weird. I haven't written in two days, actually. I've been uh, cleaning and doing Marie, Marie, Marie Kondo. Marie, where is that from? Marie Kondo. I've been trying to throw out stuff out of my house and uh, trying to be a domestic person and not writing. And I feel really weird about it I feel really weird about it and I really need to go back to it if I go more than a few days I don't know if it's guilt or like some sort of a weird capitalism thing where you're like I need to be working or I'm not like worth anything but uh I feel so funny when I don't write I feel very strange when I don't write I did want to ask about um your relationship with your husband mm. as readers and yeah. Whose books are whose? Do you all share books? They all... They're all ours. He, he has given me the best books that I've ever read. He has been a conduit for like 
amazing, amazing writers. Um, a lot of whom are dudes, I will say, but some of whom are women. Um, he, when we first started dating, he and I read a lot of uh, Douglas Copeland together. Ah. Yeah. So, so we've Life After God under there. Yeah, Bitrot. Uh, yeah, Bitrot's a new one. Uh, super weird. Uh, we've um, we read Generation X together when we first got together. Uh, we also read uh, Carter Beats the Devil together. Microsurfs, really importantly, because we ended up then working near Silicon Valley and it was ah. sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy nearly and um yeah uh, we play more video games together than we read i think that's kind of our our buzz that we live in we we at the end of the day um when both of us can tear ourselves away from our respective jobs we we just play video games and i think that that in some regards is a reading you know Mm. like it's not just play like we're very selective about the things that we play like two nights ago we spent two and a half hours playing a game called donut county which is um you play a hole in the ground and you move around things and you drop things into the hole and there's a beautiful story around why you're the hole and uh, it was two and a half hours long and we read it to each other aloud from the screen and it was kind of mostly about capitalism. Yeah, that's kind of the reading that we do tends to be through games. And I suppose that's kind of an interplay between reading and writing, isn't it? You're mm. reading a story and you're telling a story. Mm. And it's choice-oriented, right? And like, I think the writing that's done for games, like the AAA titles that we see about American men shooting each other are not actually what's interesting to mm. me. Independent developers are not unlike authors in many regards yeah. where they have an idea and a project and a vision and they labour over it and then they release it to the world so like there's a game called night in the woods that we uh, play about once a year and um there's over 180,000 words in that game should we talk about um other words of smoke because i'm very yeah excited about this you had a really amazing elevator pitch where did you say it was like twin peaks and a bit of sabrina and, and a house bit of... of leaves um bit of stranger things thrown in there though i was writing it before stranger things came out um it's about a haunted house um there's sort of two generations of women, two and a half generations of women moving through the house um, uh, who are ostensibly witches, but not by their own election. Um, the house has things living inside it, two things. One is called Sweet James and one is called Bobby Deer. And um, they, they're hungry. <laughs> That's their deal. So it's about what women do to one another for power um, and it's about love. Look, so we, we this this is the proof, right? Yeah. This, so there there has actually been so many edits Even to it. Proof oh my is god, gorgeous! I've just seen you've got kind of like almost like end paper style prints mm, within it. The like designer, some really arts and crafty ones. The designer but. who works at Titan is so actually she designed the cover of Jilly Cooper's Writers. Oh my god, so I am a member of a Jilly Cooper book club, and we are all super fans. And that is. Last year, they're going to be delighted. What's she called? Julia is her first name. Her second name escapes me. She's very tall and very beautiful and has really long hair. And I met her uh, last year, and I was like, "Thank you for being such an amazing artist." Say that the famous, the the crutch, yeah, 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 the the bum grab, yeah, yeah, that was her. So in that, I read Writers last year as well. Like, and it's gas. Writers is it's up. It's actually still next to my bed. It's hilarious. I love that that's a book that's by your bed because that's such an under the bed book. I know. Well, like, oh Jesus, I'm saying we've we've kind of skimmed over loads of weird, sexy books around here. Like, there's a a lovely anthology called Smut Peddler of really beautiful. uh, Yeah, yeah, it's all like really beautiful, um, drawn uh, erotica. Yeah, I'm, I'm like. Free yourself, man. Liberate yourself. Yeah, no, Jilly Cooper's bananas. Like, that was bizarre. I'd never read anything like it in my life. I was like, this is hilarious and f- so freeing. Like, it moves so fast. Everyone's awful. Everyone just calls each other fat all the time. It's just every second page, like, and she's fat. I'm like, oh, wow, we're doing this, are we? Oh, am I still I reading? I weigh like, about the same as two fat Jilly Cooper characters. Same. I'm just like, I don't think anybody was fat in the 70s, one. <laughs> That's yeah, not how food worked. They mocked her because she weighed nine stone. What? Me and my potato cheeks. And I'm like, stop yourself, man. It's such a strange book, but I uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was mad. I'm so glad you had so much fun with it. Oh, yeah. I think it's it's pretty much something I won't read. Do you know what I mean? I feel like it's really important to keep it super, super, super broad. And if there's a book that was... Yeah, if there's a book that was culturally fucking important, like writers, why wouldn't I read it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, like, I feel like people are weird about mm. that kind of stuff. I'm weird about, like, chick lit or women writers. And, like, I, I don't know, Carolina Dunya has a podcast about a sentimental Absolutely. garbage, right? Sentimental like, fantastic. I think that, like, it's really important to be sound about it. And mm. when I meet people who are snobs, I'm just like, girl, do you think you're better than everyone else? Does that make you feel good at night? I like, <laughs> now as well. 
because it does feel as though everybody's got a very urgent, very breathless, not quite formed opinion, but they must share it with the world. Mm-hmm. And what's good about reading a book that maybe wouldn't be in your in your reading comfort zone or, came or something out millions of years ago? Mm, it's a way of, I think, having that something that's not perhaps in your purview, but it's not a hot mm. take. It's a very considered way of gathering perspectives. Perspective and context mm. is really important. Like, I, I don't know, I feel like the same way about reading Stephen King, right? You know what I mean? It's from the past. It's problematic, but it's also like fucking and it's canonical. That, I mean, oh God, for, I think, good reasons, bless her heart, I'm, you know, super fan, adore her, but... Dilly Cooper gets a lot of shit for being problematic. And that's because it is problematic. Is, but yeah. I never hear anybody giving Stephen King shit for being problematic. You know, I mm, I wonder why that might be. Oh, Sarah, mm-hmm. what? what? I'm very confused. Very confused you about all of this. because he's a man? Like, I think people need to chill a bit about, like, read. Like, I'm very self-conscious about posting what I'm reading online because I feel like I'm always reading the wrong thing. I'm always reading something uncool or something that I'm not reading up to date. If I'm not reading the book that has just come out or an arc of something that's about to come out, I feel mortified for myself. And like someone's going to be like, oh, well, you know, she hasn't read X or she hasn't read Y. And, you know, I would feel really um, guilty and ashamed. But also I kind of just want to read my weird Anthony Bourdain ghost stories or I kind of just want to go back and read like Julie Cooper or like I'm kind of skimming through Hilda, which is this beautiful um, children's book. Um, and uh, it's about a little girl who was brought up in the forest who moves to a town. It's on Netflix at the moment. I enjoyed the Netflix one, so now I want to read the graphic novel. And I know that there are books I should be reading uh, in order to keep up appearances, I guess. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because doing this, I think it's funny. There's so much here and there are so many books I've never read or known about that I'm so excited about. But you never ever look at anyone's bookshelf and think, oh, they've not got this. That's funny. But I think there's a lot of anxiety now. And I'm sure being in in the world of writing and I'm sure you sort of get sent masses of stuff and, and when all your friends are writing as well mm. and it's thrilling but also you're like oh god I can't I don't even have time to read those books I always try I'm not always able to because I know that people make time for me and I feel like it's an act of good faith and it's not like it's I can't always do it immediately mm, yes but I I always try my absolute very best to do it because I think we should mind each other like I was saying yeah. earlier about coming up in a generation and being like holy shit I can bang off like 15 to 20 amazing Irish women and I'm realizing that I even forgot a couple like I read Neil O'Connor's Becoming Belle which is like a historical fiction book uh earlier on this year and I got to interview her like I there's so many amazing, amazing women writing and I want to keep up with them all really desperately mm. and I can't well that's that's absolutely it I think is the I feel huge amount of guilt I cannot read everybody's book like the more <laughs> widely read you are the more luxury you get in perspective right I'm not that widely read I'm trying you know my god I think you are I don't know I feel like I I, I, I never, you never feel like you've done enough None. It's, mm. it's it's like that with so many things the top of the mountain is not something that you can look mm. at the, to- this, the bookshelves at the top of the mountain there's lots of books here I haven't read you know? Do you read when you're writing? I mean, uh, you must poetry. do because you poetry, um, mostly more poetry than not, uh, and essays. Uh, I try with novels, and if someone I know is is writing a novel, I'll, I'll read it for them. But like, I every day, daily wise, mm-hmm. like I recently just read um fucking, and they're not here, and I'd love I'd love it if they were uh, Maggie Nelson's Bluets and uh, Sarah Magnuso's uh, Three Hundred Arguments. So like fragments, I fucking love because they permit me something, which is the closure of the book after a certain period of time. Mm. There's no hostage keeping. And I'm aware that I write novels, right? And that <laughs> novels are long. But when you have only got a very certain amount of like like emotional bandwidth mm. in a day, uh, I'll read books when I have a weekend. <laughs> weekend? What are weekends? Um, or I'm on holiday. I'm going to go on holiday. I bring like four books. There's a series called Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling. <gasps> I right? love those books okay. so much. So I have been terrified to read them because I was like, what? What if my sense of humour is so broken that I don't find these funny and I'm the only dickhead in Ireland who doesn't, right? <laughs> so I took them both on holiday. I took a, a brief holiday, which I shouldn't have, um, for like five days. Uh, oh, and uh, I know, it was, but it was really badly timed uh, work-wise. But I had a lovely time with my friend who was pregnant and like we had a really lovely time, but I had the, the spectre of my work hanging behind me. But I did read both Ashling books in two days and then I immediately handed them to my mate and that rare crystalline moment where you're both softly laughing at the same thing oh my god I will never forget enjoying like the pleasure and the happiness they gave me as well as the pride that Sarah and Emer are like um Sarah Breen and Emer McLeisett are like 
they're writing accurate, total portrayal of Irish rural women in a way that's accessible and kind and fucking really funny and really insightful and really incisive. I mean, in the UK, you know? people adore I'm those so books. Bad. But I'm I get so the bad. impression here. I remember seeing tweets of people saying oh, that, like, gosh. before Christmas, every single person in the queue at the bookstore had, had that Irish. book. Yeah, and I felt mortified that I hadn't gotten to them yet. I was, like, scared. I was like, someone's going to ask me, have I read them? And I bumped into them... Um, at an event and I was like girls I haven't done it yet but I'm going to read them on my holiday and I'm sure they thought I was being a bollocks about it and like I oh, yeah, sure you're going to fucking read them but I'm so glad I did I'm so fucking glad I did and uh, I just I'm really sad that I have to wait for another one because I think um, what you said before about um, we shouldn't keep writing to people like wouldn't it be when we're having a chat for coffee but um, kind humour mm. and the Ashling and it's taking this idea of the basic bitch but making her truly truly adorable yeah and in a way that is, I think, really hard to do. Mm. And the the compassion. And I was, re- I sort of, I had an idea, I think, with the first one. What to expect. And I was like, I, my expectations are high. And it's mm. going to be really funny. I'm really, really excited. But the, the family storylines, the sensitivity and sort of the tough tenderness with which they were handled. And it blew me away, truly. Outstanding. Like, I don't think I've read anything like it. I love when that happens. When you read something, you're like, oh, cool. I literally haven't read anything like this before. I am different now, a bit. Maybe yes. I'm a bit more kind. Maybe mm. I'm a bit more, I want to be a bit more like Ashling. And my God, right now, if we need books that do anything, books so that make us kinder. Media. Kind media. So I think this is the Generation X thing, the kind of Douglas Copeland thing that I was talking about a bit earlier. Like there's a, Douglas Copeland defined the term Generation X. He also defined the term Millennial. That's one man decided that word existed, right? He decided, he he is the originator of that discussion and that discourse around um, who I guess we are, right? But also, what defines Generation Xers, who are people who like made all the media and like who were the writers of things like The Simpsons, say, which I I'm, I think I'm the only person in the world who is like south of The Simpsons or something. I'm like I don't understand it. Sarcasm, sarcasm was like this true kind of. Like, the best humour is sarcastic, scathing mm. satire, right? It's mean. We're poking fun at things. We're aiming up, hopefully. But we're t- we're being cruel I mean, about it, Generation right? Generation X, they're the inventors of the not joke. Like, I think you're great. Not. not right? <laughs> That's... So it's, it, it, it is in its very self kind of mean. Mm. Which, like, cool work. I find mean humour. If I enjoy it, it's always sunny Philadelphia. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, like, some fucking beacon of purity. Like, I also am a dickhead. But then I but... Was as well about Always Sunny, which is not a, not a book. Um, it's not a book. Well, it's great. <laughs> but, like, the joke is their meanness. We laugh yeah. and not... It's meanness. not encouraging that. No, it's, but, like, it's still not... Ashley. Or like, it's not like the nice, the, there no. there are, there or like the, the, the McElroy brothers run series of podcasts called like The Adventure Zone or My Brother, My Brother and Me. Or like there's there's kind humour and kind media mm. where it manages to be incredibly funny at literally nobody's expense. Yes. And I think that that's what Breen and McLeisett have managed. They've managed mm. something compassionately funny. Yeah. Mm. It's not unkind because it's total. You know, we get to see Ashling from all these different perspectives. And I don't think there's been enough writing done about it. And I would love to write about them as a piece of feminist work and as a piece of work that speaks about Irish culture. Because Irish women don't really historically get to see ourselves at that level of people like Marion Keyes, I guess, aside at that level of totality. Like Father Ted is still 30 slash years later. Well, actually, that's... this this commentary, right? Mm. This like image of Irish people it's still hashtag relatable. It's still us. We've grown out of that. I think we need a new one. And I think Ashling does this. And there's no women in fucking Father's Head, are there? Really? You know, it's sushi for beginners, yeah. isn't it? And that has an Ashling in, and her relationship with Joy and Ted, her flatmates, and they're very kind of that sort of. They know they're a type, and they're very very self aware. Yeah, there's a there's a, a, a an eyes wide about it, but also I think. Like the ending of the, oh, spoilers, you know, the ending, we won't go into it, but the ending of the first Ashling book, it did something to my ribs. I was like reading it and I, f- I felt something where I was like, these aren't just caricatures. I do think because we're a small island, the women tend to league very hard with each other. Like I, like I said earlier about having received kindness and like literally just someone saying you can continue to do this or one hour of coffee, you know, or like, hey, I'm not able to do this job. Can you do it? Like just support. Mm. I think the other women who write on this island know what we're are what our history is, what we're coming up against, and see one another. And I do think we're an int- incredibly supportive community. I do. I've I've felt a lot of soundness, and um, again, it's a lonely job. You keep your head down, you know. And I definitely think in that the community 
I have felt a lot of good vibes and nobody is rooting harder for Sarah Breen and Amy McClyce than other, other Irish writers because it's the rising tide, man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Dave Rodden has that tattooed in his arm. The rising tide lifts all boats. My dad used to say to me, books aren't displayed by themselves on a wall. They're in shelves. Revolving plinth. <laughs> yeah, it's like a one revolving plinth. <laughs> like, hi, here's my lone book. It's a shelf, you know? Like, you don't want to be the only one. There's loads of us. There's loads of us. And they're more than the sum of their parts. That yeah. These books are all raised by each other yeah. in the way they wouldn't be they on their own. They all speak to each other. They all influence each other. There's like this culture. You know what I mean? There's like the successes of other Irish writers make Ireland look good. They might draw more readers to Irish literature. Like we're all just trying to kind of get along. Do you know what I mean? At the end of the day, the work happens by yourself. But the thing that you finish sits on a shelf with loads of other people and I personally would rather this is the, goes back to the bookshop conversation where it's like I am glad to know that the other people in the art well I'm generally I'm in sci-fi whoop sci-fi, sci-fi people are also very sound but generally if I look at a wall of Irish literature I had this in the bookshop actually very recently hi Mo Hello. what's up um, I was in the bookshop recently and the on the wall in, in Hodges Fidges was fucking Sally Rooney Anna Burns Emily Pine and I was like absolutely right Look at these huns. Look at these girls. Do you know what I mean? These are all Irish women, all making amazing work. Like, that's fucking great. Do you know? Like, I can't imagine what the opposite of that is. Huge thanks to Sarah. You can find her on Twitter at Grifsky and on Instagram at Sarah Grifsky. Do buy Other Words for Smoke, published by Titan Books immediately. It's startlingly elegant and genuinely chilling, but intensely human. Her world sucks you in and won't let you go. I promise you'll be completely addicted. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me as I bookcased the joint. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. For now, I leave you with Joey Tribbiani on the children's classic The Velveteen Rabbit. This is because I know you like rabbits and I know you like cheese. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.